This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by someone who is a friend and a fellow traveller, one of the finest podcasting minds in the country. Uh, We've taken many adventures together uh, on these um, podcasting waves and she's back again for one more adventure. It's Clara Cook. Hi, Clara. How are you? Hi, Duncan. I'm very well this evening. I'm here with my pipe. Um, my cocaine solution. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <yeah. laughs> my slippers, the tobacco in my slippers. Uh, and your trusty hand. violin, I hope. My trusty violin, yes. And, yeah. and Watson, yeah. and Watson, my, my cat, my cat Watson. Oh, that's nice. I thought I was going to be Watson. Oh no, you can be Watson. You can be Watson. I thought I got I got I got to be Watson in this fantasy. It's my story. But you oh, know, no. yeah, hey, yeah, you should be whatever. Watson. Are you Sherlock? I could be Watson. That's you know we can Watson is kind of a thankless part, I think, as he, you know, Geordie LaForge can probably attest. It's that great moment where he, he basically says, What's my role? And Data says, Yeah, your role is to sit there and write down everything I say and do. <laughs> Obviously, we are talking this evening about Sherlock Holmes. Um, This is another one of these topics that Clara and I were supposed to be recording well over a year ago, I suppose now, and got kind of put on the back burner. And I have to say, Clara, I had already done the at that point, the the most research I've ever done for an episode of Primitive Culture, I read, well, I, I do somewhere have a copy of the complete complete Sherlock Holmes on a shelf, but I actually went and spent one of my Audible credits on the audio version, which is 60 hours of Stephen Fry reading every single Holmes novel and short story. This is probably was overkill for the sake of a Primitive Culture episode, but I got completely hooked and completely swept into them. And I, you know, I hadn't... Um, read much Sherlock Holmes. I I read a few of them as a kid, you you know, a smattering of them. I read The Hounds of the Baskervilles. I read a few of the stories or whatever, and I enjoyed them. And obviously, like everyone, I've seen kind of Holmes stories on screen over the years, whether it's the BBC Sherlock or the Robert Downey Jr. movies, or going back some of the kind of classic, uh, kind of classic movies from earlier eras. But um, I'm not a kind of Holmes aficionado. Now, you, I think, are a bit more of a kind of, you've been a passionate, uh, Homesian, I think I, I saw it's one of the terms for them. Sherlockians, Homesians, like Cartesians, for a while. Is that right? This is this is something that's played a big role in your life. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I've liked Sherlock Holmes for many years. I have a very close friend, a best friend of mine, and we have this thing where um, 
like we just both of us are obsessed with Sherlock Holmes and we've gone to the Sherlock Holmes Museum, sat in the chair, both posed as Sherlock and Watson. Uh, just uh, last, at the end of last year, we went to uh, the Sherlock Holmes escape room experience, uh, which is uh, was based on the most recent Sherlock uh, adaption, which is, you know, with Benedict Cumberbatch. And uh, yeah, so I've always loved, I used to spend a lot of time in the Murder One bookstore in Charing Cross Road, which was basically a bookstore devoted to murder and crime. And uh, I used to spend a lot of time in the Sherlock Holmes section, most of which was filled with Sherlock Holmes pastiches, I guess you'd call them, or like homages to Sherlock Holmes. There was very, uh, there was like a section that was just like Arthur Conan Doyle. And then the rest of it was like people writing carry on novels, like, novels that followed on from the stories or like Sherlock Holmes's childhood or like all sorts of ra- Sherlock Holmes goes back in time, Sherlock Holmes and dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, it all got a bit crazy after a while. These are the non-canonical Sherlock Holmes, basically, because there's this concept, as there is in Star Trek. I mean, the, the more I sort of looked into it, the more parallels there seem to be between Sherlock Holmes world and the Star Trek world that there's this idea of the canon and the canon is the whatever it is, 50 odd short stories. And is it four novels? I think that Conan Doyle wrote whatever the, the, the complete Conan Doyle homes, and then everything else is the kind of non-canonical output. Just as in some ways, you know, we have the kind of canon, what's seen on screen, and then we have like the the novels and the comics and all this stuff that kind of exists in this sort of, you know, non-canonical, soft canonical, however you want to interpret it, but that kind of tries to fit within the, the strictures of what the canon has laid down but kind of expanding and, and continuing. Uh, and, and you're right, you know, the amount of that that exists now for Sherlock Holmes, probably not as much as exists for Star Trek, but a significant proportion. And many of them, as it happens, written by someone who played a very big role in Star Trek, Nicholas Meyer, because he was one of the early people to start that process, I think, of expanding beyond the canon and kind of reinventing Sherlock Holmes in various ways. Yeah, and I think that around about the time that people started writing like sort of Star Trek fan fiction, you know, like fans uh, on 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 the in- well, I was before the internet was around actually, um, but you know, they also were actually writing sort of Sherlock fan fiction around the same time. And there's actually some sort of cases very early on of fanzines where Sherlock and Star Trek are kind of combined, uh, and you know, there's this sort of fan theory which isn't. You know, and I guess to a certain extent, some of it's like fan based, and some of it is that was deliberately started by Nicholas Mayer, I suppose. You know, in the undiscovered country, that Spock is like a descendant of Sherlock, and you can, if you go online, find somebody who has actually written a whole family tree linking <laughs> Sherlock, Spock, and the Pink Panther, saying showing wow. how they're all related to each other through through like <laughs> genealogy. And it, I was, yeah. I was like, wow, this person has. A, a lot of time on their hands. And the Pink Panther definitely could have been a character in the animated series. I mean, you know, that was the crossover that was waiting to happen, I think. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. You, you, we can come on and talk a little bit about that line in the Undiscovered Country uh, and, and, and what that, how seriously we are aren't meant to take it. But I mean, I sort of see that as a typical kind of Nick Meyer playing a little bit of a joke one way or another. And certainly if you read his Holmes novels, they're full of little in-jokes and little... I mean, they call it the game. The the Sherlockians, they have this concept of what they call the game, which is the kind of endeavour to pretend that 
the Sherlock Holmes stories were real, essentially, and to kind of work around them, to research around them. And they, they you know, they, they will go and dig up, you know, records of, you know, railway timetables or things like that to sort of try and fit, fit the fiction into kind of reality one way or another. And there is, I think, a sense, particularly in Meyer's books of kind of playfulness around it. They're, they're kind of postmodern in a way. I mean, at one point, because he wrote famously this novel, The 7% Solution, which involves kind of elevator pitches, Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. Uh, at one point, Dr. Watson and Sigmund Freud have a conversation about Conan Doyle, because in, in the kind of fictitious world of these expanded Holmes fictions, Watson was a real person, not a fictional creation. And therefore, Conan Doyle was this kind of literary agent or something who was kind of, uh, you, you know, putting Watson's stories into publication, essentially but was himself a real person in, in that world. So there is that kind of sense of playfulness, that sense of kind of playing around with these ideas. That's, for me personally, that's kind of how I take that line in The Undiscovered Country. But it definitely is a, a provocative line, and it's one that draws the parallel very directly. And it's also an interesting parallel, I think, because the two characters in Star Trek that we see being associated with Holmes are two characters who we also see being associated very much with each other, which is um, Spock from the original series and then Data in The Next Generation. And I think there is something kind of revealing about that, that those are the two. Now, with Spock, it's just that kind of throwaway line and then something about the way that kind of undiscovered country plays out and maybe there's some more kind of subtextual stuff. I mean, with Data, you mentioned going to the um, escape room, which is a kind of... you know, ultimate fan activity, I guess, kind of getting to play along as, as, as Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson or whatever. Of course, that's exactly what we see Data doing. Data is not only someone who's a bit like Sherlock Holmes, he's also a kind of Sherlock Holmes super fan. He's a Sherlockian. He's a Homesian. He's, he's, you know, a member, a signed up member of the Sherlock Holmes Appreciation Society or whatever. And it's kind of interesting that that's one of the sort of early insights, I suppose, into Data kind of learning to be more human, learning to kind of develop as a character and so on, is this strand of him, I think before we see him sort of doing Shakespeare and doing Dickens and doing all these other stuff, you know, dressing up and playing Sherlock Holmes. It's a fascinating insight into that character, I think, one way or another. You mentioned dressing up. I think dressing up is definitely, there's something about that. Like, there's something about the way that Holmes dresses, like with the deerstalker and the cape and well, the, it's the coat with a cape attached to it, I suppose, like a big long coat. And uh, his sort of mannerisms and the pipe and everything, uh, that is very recognisable. And in a way, it's also the sort of similar thing with Data. And I would say the same thing with Spock. If you go to a convention, you will see probably more people dressed up as Data um, than almost any other character. And I would say, or, or at the same time, also a lot of people dressed up as Spock as well. So Spock and, and Data are two characters that you see people dress up a lot as well. Um, and it's also a similar thing as, as, as Sherlock. I mean, when you go to Comic Con or something, there's a lot, there'll be a lot of people dressed as Sherlock and whether or not they're dressed as like the modern Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock or the older fashioned one, um, the original, more, the more original character. So, in a way, obviously, these are all three very complicated men that we're talking about, but they're also, they can also be kind of distilled down to a few sort of really strong characteristics. Um, and data especially as well, I think, which is that, um, it's very analytical. Um, they're very much about looking at facts. They're very much about deducing things, um, coming up with hypotheses that they can then prove. Uh, sort of, but all, all three of them are very scientific. Um, and with the, I guess data is slightly different than both Sherlock and Spock because of the fact that he is searching 
to for humanity and he's trying to feel the emotions of his human colleagues um and his crewmates he's trying to become more human whereas i feel that sherlock and spock are trying to suppress their passions uh, and engage in scientific exploration uh so there is a slight difference there i feel like with data he is really playing at being sherlock i personally don't feel like he is actually um as close to the character as say spock is but i feel like he's really playing at being sherlock but i think it's interesting that sherlock should appeal to him so much and i think part of that is to do with the the skills of observation because of the fact that data is constantly observing his crewmates to see what they're doing so he can ape it you know and kind of adapt that to 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 sort of be more human so those skills of observation i think he's kind of fascinated by like in terms of uh, sherlock but he himself is actually kind of a different person i kind of i've always wondered what what would happen if sherlock actually met data and i think sherlock would be intrigued by him but i think he'd be rather disappointed because what sherlock likes is he likes murder he likes a, a puzzle and he he needs he needs passionate emotional people around to do that i think one of the reasons why he loves watson so much is because watson is the other side of him kind of Watson's the more emotional character more emotional person almost like a dr mccoy so i'm not sure sherlock would like data so much uh, i think he might be curious and intrigued by him but i don't know if he would enjoy his company i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, there's a there's a crossover comic or or something to, you know, maybe someone's already done it for all we know. It's an interesting it's an interesting point. I mean, Holmes is not is not emotionless. We do see him. I mean, for one thing, he often expresses inappropriate emotions. He often expresses glee at inappropriate moments. I mean, Watson is often sort of feeling slightly or irritation. But I'm thinking like, you know, someone comes and says and, and they, they play this actually in the, you know, the Cumberbatch version as well, really well. Um someone comes and, and tells him about some terrible thing that's happened to them and he can't quite suppress his excitement if it's an interesting puzzle at, at it. And Watson is kind of almost trying to sort of smooth it over. There is something, you know, almost sort of, I suppose you might say sociopathic or, you know, in a, he's kind of inappropriate with his emotions, but he does generally seem very analytical, very kind of cool. I mean, Data is absolutely fixated on this character. He becomes obsessed very quickly because it's actually, it's not in Elementary, My Dear Data, the first episode, I think, where Sherlock Holmes comes up is Lonely Among Us. And it only takes a kind of almost a sort of passing reference from someone. I think it's maybe Riker, someone else who sort of mentions Sherlock Holmes to him. And he obviously like goes away, you know, in between scenes and presumably reads all of Arthur Conan Doyle's stories in like 30 seconds or something and then comes back and in the next scene where there's some you know supposedly serious mystery going on on the ship Data's there with a pipe kind of already doing his awful uh, kind of Sherlock Holmes impersonation which Brent Spiner's obviously having a great time with which in itself I suppose is kind of inappropriate that he's like you know they're trying to talk to him it's quite funny the way that scene is shot because you see I think it's Riker and Yar having a serious conversation then it cuts across to Data and he's there with this pipe uh, sort of basically being slightly ridiculous but so he he absolutely falls for Holmes and and I don't know if this is Brent Spiner or this is Data but one of the things he seems to love about Holmes is this slightly kind of OTT quality you know he puts on this slightly ridiculous voice he puts on this kind of persona it's very much not data i mean if anything data and homes probably have more in common but the way data plays homes is less like data and more like some kind of parody of of a sort of i don't know a, a sort of fancy of a kind of old-fashioned actor i suppose really and i think the homes that data was 
inspired by or that Spiner was inspired by as I understand it was specifically meant to be Basil Rathbone's homes he was you know very popular for many people the kind of iconic homes certainly of the kind of wartime era I mean he was making Sherlock Holmes stories throughout the Second World War I think interestingly some of them period pieces you know with the deer stalker and the cape and everything some of them set in the modern day you know in kind of contemporary 1940s clothing but certainly probably I guess one of the most successful homes is him and 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 his Watson Nigel Bruce is that right his his Watson who was a very I think it's maybe almost the model for the kind of idiot Watson that we sometimes get because he absolutely plays him as a buffoon which I think is a bit unfair to Watson as a character I mean Watson obviously is not Sherlock Holmes but personally I prefer the kind of uh, the Cumberbatch and Freeman, you know, Freeman's version of Watson feels closer to the original in some ways in that he's not an idiot. He's just a normal guy, basically. And that's the sort of contrast. But um, I, I think that Rathbone Holmes is really specifically what they were thinking of, certainly what Brent Spiner maybe was thinking of in that slightly bizarre performance that he he gives in those episodes. Yeah, it feels like he's, it almost feels like when he's acting that he's like quoting from an old black and white movie. Do you know what I mean? He's just, and he's got this very sort of clipped English accent, which is just very mannered. Like he's really putting it on. I actually found those episodes a little bit unbearable. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I thought they were funny. You know, they were kind of enjoyable. There was one uh, line from one of those first episodes, actually, um, uh, Elementary Dear Data, um, where I think it's Pulaski says, um, crammed full of crumpets. I just, uh, I just felt that was a very funny thing for her to say. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's just it's the way she says it. You know, they keep going on about the crumpets. It's like, it's like cr- crump. You know, we're in Victorian England. We're going to talk about crumpets, and not just once. We're going to keep going back to crumpets. Yeah. And I think it's this idea of like what English people are like. You know, I mean, it's very like. I did think though one of the great things about those episodes was Moriarty, and but there's a there's a real clash there between Data and Moriarty because Data feels like this very sort of artificial Sherlock, you know, really like play acting, kind of larger, larger than, than Sherlock would be like in terms of the way he's acting and, and, and the things that he's saying. And then um, Moriarty appears very much like Moriarty, you know, like he's, I thought he was quite a good Moriarty and he's much more understated and he does appear kind of threatening. Uh, and it's, it's, it's telling that when Picard comes on the scene, that the real foil for Moriarty is Picard, it's not Data. Um, and that um, Picard is actually the adversary for Moriarty. And that would kind of imply that Picard's a bit more like Holmes in these episodes than, or this, this particular episode. But also in the other one, in the other one, uh, the one that comes after this, where Mor- Moriarty sort of take ship in a bottle, yeah, where Moriarty kind of tries to take over the Enterprise. Uh, Picard is really his threat, not not Data so much. Well, it is Picard and Data who kind of solve the mystery together in that, in that Data is the one who works out what's going on in that episode. He works out that, they, that they've never left the holodeck. But then again, it sort of comes down to Picard to sort of work out what to do. I think that's an interesting point. And yes, Picard is in some ways more of a, a Holmesy figure in that he's quite cool and aloof and quite sort of, um, I mean, certainly in the, you know, the new Picard series, he's even sort of makes reference to the fact that his kind of emotional intelligence was maybe not what it might have been. Do you know what I mean? He, he kind of seems to regret that. He's, he's kind of aware of those failings in himself, which is interesting, uh, which is not something that I think is 
there are kind of hints of that in next gen, I suppose. When you get to like things with children, I suppose that comes out more, but, um, they certainly seem to be leaning into that more. But yeah, it's an interesting point. You're right. I think he kind of takes over the episode a little bit from this kind of, it's partly because the episode suddenly turns a little bit more serious and, you know, Data's Homes is slightly ridiculous. It's kind of slightly silly. On the other hand, you know, I do think it's fun. I do think there are obvious parallels between Data and Holmes. I mean, Holmes is described repeatedly by Conan Doyle as, uh, in one story, he's called a calculating machine. He's described as being kind of, um, you know, inhuman in various ways, as lack of cold blooded, as lacking something, a machine rather than a man, he's called in another episode, in another, um, story. I mean, there is this kind of sense that other people sometimes see Holmes as kind of almost, robotic. Do you know what I mean? As lacking kind of human feelings insofar as he lacks kind of normal human reactions to some extent. I mean, with the the Cumberbatch version, it's much more played as, you know, maybe he's autistic or he has some kind of, do you know what I mean? It's, it's played as a kind of, um, in terms that we might kind of understand more as a sort of, you know, not being neurotypical, for want of a better word, um, which I think lines up fairly well with what um, Conan Doyle actually is is writing. But definitely it sort of makes sense to cast Data in this role, I suppose. But it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, the, how Sherlock would feel about Data, because of course that's the point that Pulaski makes in that episode, is she says basically Data is just a machine and Holmes was not just a machine. Holmes understood evil. That's what she says is Holmes could kind of see into the heart of evil, essentially, that he was a psychologist as much as he was a scientist and a kind of you know, we think of him in terms of this idea of deduction uh, and kind of these impossible feats of uh, sort of almost technical brilliance that he, 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 you know, you walk into the room and he will tell you your whole kind of life story and what you've had for breakfast and everything based on tiny clues that he's kind of picked up. But there's an element also of the kind of psychological, he has to understand why people might do things that they do and that data maybe lacks that. That certainly is Pulaski's belief is that data will never quite get that side of it. And it's interesting, the other episode for Data that has a little bit of a kind of Holmes element is Data's Day, where again, Data is kind of involved in, you know, there's a mystery, you know, there's this ambassador that has disappeared and is she alive? Is she dead? You know, what's going on? And Data's kind of investigating. And he says in his letter to Maddox, he quotes this line from Holmes, which is I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't know which is the correct version. I think there's many different versions, but basically if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable must be the truth. So again, there's this kind of parallel drawn between Data and Holmes. But again, that whole episode is all about how Data doesn't understand what other people are thinking or doesn't understand other people's emotions. He doesn't understand why Keiko's called off the wedding. He doesn't understand why uh, O'Brien is angry when he tells him he should be pleased that Keiko's called off the wedding. Uh, he He basically relentlessly misunderstands everyone's emotions throughout the entire episode, which does is clearly a limitation if you're an investigator one way or another and you're trying to understand people. And it's another reason, I suppose, why the um, the Maya novel where uh, Holmes meets Freud is such a clever idea because Freud is, I think in that novel, he sort of says, you know, Holmes says to him, you know, you're the ultimate detective. Basically, you're the detective who can get inside our minds and understand exactly what's going on inside our minds. And that really is a, is a key element of what Holmes is doing as much as the kind of scientific side is. Yeah, I don't think that Holmes doesn't understand people. I think he understands people very well, too well, perhaps maybe. That's why he's... Um you know, kind of able to predict what they're going to do or why they have done what they've done. I also think he doesn't 
I wouldn't say he doesn't feel for people either. I think for him is, and he says this again and again in, 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 in the stories and in the novels and stuff, that I think that it, he's suppressing his emotion because I think he feels emotion gets in the way of, like, fact. It gets in the way of analysis. It gets in the way of solving the game or solving the problem. Uh, and so he's trying to look at everything as rationally and objectively as possible in order to solve the problem. And I think there must be some aspect to his personality that actually like enjoys compartmentalizing his emotions so that he can focus his entire like brilliant intellect on uh, looking for that, that one clue or trying to figure out this one problem. And in, in a way it, that kind of fits as well with other things as well. So like Watson sort of explains that he has this huge, like deep knowledge about certain things, but then kind of doesn't understand like how the, you know, the earth moves around the sun. Do you know what I mean? There's some things that he's obvious things that he just doesn't get and he can't understand, but that's because he's, that there's of no use to him. They're of no use to him in that moment or in that, in, in that, in that sort of, situation where he's trying to solve a, solve a crime and so i think sometimes the emotions are useless to him so i think going into a room where there's this dead body lying there you know and um and everybody's so upset his anxiety or fear or sorrow about this dead person is actually would hinder him in solving the crime and also is useless to him in this situation so he either compartmentalizes it or he suppresses it to the point where he doesn't feel it because there are times where he does get very upset about something. Like I'm thinking of, I think it's the five orange pips, four orange pips, one of those ones. Um, I think it's five orange pips. I think there I are five. Yeah, I say four, but it's the sign of four. It's the sign of four. Yeah, the five sign orange pips. Sign of four. Four orange. Five orange pips. Five yep. orange pips. I think it's the five orange pips. He, he and the seven percent solution. And the seven percent solution. And the dancing man. So I don't know what we get for six. Or um, <laughs> but um, I think he's. I think in that, I think it's in that story that he fails to save somebody and he gets very, very angry and very upset about it. And I think that I don't think much justice is done to Watson in some of these portrayals. I don't think Watson is the stupid little bumbling guy that goes along with, that goes along with uh, Sherlock. Watson's essential um, for Sherlock. He's kind of there because Sherlock needs to reconnect with the human world after he's done all of this. And, and Watson helps him do that. And, you know, Watson's, kind of like his bridge to the rest of humanity because otherwise i think sherlock would be a bit of a loner you know uh, uh, by himself um and he's kind of a melancholic character i think that if anything he's probably kind of a depressive i mean as soon as he doesn't have something to occupy his mind he turns to drugs and playing the violin mournfully do you know what i mean so i don't feel like he's an individual who um I, I don't know about the most recent Sherlock um, portrayal, Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't feel, I mean, he's also portraying someone who's emotional too. I don't feel he's somebody who doesn't care about other people. Maybe he does have some sort of alternative way of seeing the world, like a uh, neural diverse, neural diverse way of seeing the world that's different to other people. And maybe he's on a spectrum somewhere. I think people often think he's this character who doesn't feel things. And I guess in a way, sometimes I think people mistake Spock for being like that too. Uh, and the only thing about data is data is like that because of his programming um, and his the technology of his body, but not forever because he gets the emotion. No. Well, there you go. And, and who, sadly, we never see him playing Sherlock Holmes after that. Maybe, you know, maybe he'd be much better at it. Who knows? But um, it's interesting. You mentioned Holmes getting angry and it's true. It seems out of character when Holmes gets angry or it seems out of, uh, not out of character, but it, it, it it's quite shocking when he suddenly has an outburst like that. 
Actually, Spock in the Undiscovered Country gets very angry with Valeris. You know, when that when that whole thing comes out, there's that point where he kind of sort of throws her, her arm aside. I think, doesn't he? With the there, there's kind of genuine the anger. Of, he snaps oh, at her exactly, yeah. and it's not just kind of he's got to get the weapon out of the way. You can see he's really, really pissed off at that point. So his kind of emotional control has sort of slipped. But typically, yes, of course, we know as a Vulcan, his goal. Uh, it's not that he doesn't have emotions, his goal is to suppress them. And you're right, I think that's exactly what is going on with Holmes. There was a line I wrote down from one of the, um, I think from a scandal in Bohemia, Watson says all emotions were abhorrent to his mind. So that's the kind of idea that that they're going to get in the way, I suppose. Um, and there's, I don't know if it's in the same story or in another one, he, he describes um, emotion as being like a crack in a scientific instrument, that Holmes is almost like a kind of um, microscope himself who can kind of see into the intricacies of the world. And if he gets emotional, then he will get kind of distracted from it. He kind of won't be able to do it. So there's this weird sort of, ambiguity, I suppose. On the one hand, Holmes seems to think that to be the perfect detective, he needs to be as rational and scientific and as unemotional as possible, as maybe Spock does. And yet someone else like Pulaski might be coming at it and saying, well, actually, Holmes needs his kind of emotional ones. He needs to understand people. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Spock, maybe Spock is the perfect Holmes because he's half human and half Vulcan. He's kind of got both those sides. And there is that kind of weird sense of this character like you say, Holmes is nothing without Watson. When Watson's not there and when there's not a case that they're working on, he gets depressed. He takes loads of drugs. Uh, you know, in Nicholas Meyer's novel, he, he's on the point where they think he's, he's effectively going to kill himself because he's, he's become such a terrible drug addict. Um, he doesn't really function without Watson. They're almost two sides of the same coin. And there's this sort of interesting question you've, you've got with these stories because there's all this kind of duplication of who, who is sort of representing who? So you've got Watson who's notionally telling these stories. And I think this is one of the things that so made them so successful is their kind of faux reality that is there by the fact that the narrator is also a participant in the stories. But you've also got Dr. Watson in that role. You've got Conan Doyle, who himself was a doctor, who is sort of almost of Watson almost seems to be a sort of version of him. But you've also got, interestingly, the character Sherlock Holmes, I think, is partly modelled on another doctor who... Doyle uh, studied under at Edinburgh University. And the first, I think it's the first collection of Sherlock stories is dedicated to this doctor who was called Dr. Joseph Bell, who practiced exactly this kind of diagnostic technique of, you know, uh, telling you things about a patient that you wouldn't expect to be able to know, you, you know, just like Sherlock Holmes does. So it's this weird kind of sense of these characters sort of splitting and combining and, you know, and sort of who plays what role. And, and one of the things in that in Nick Meyer's novel, when you've got Sigmund Freud, is then you've almost got two Dr. Watsons, because like you've got Sherlock Holmes, and then you've got his kind of uh, a doctor who's hanging around with him. Then you've got another doctor who's hanging around with him. Then you've got... But you've sort of all, always got that on one level, because you've always got Conan Doyle who's hanging around with both of them. I don't know, there's, there's this kind of weird sense of these sort of split um, elements of a personality somehow. And Spock, of course, embodies that better than anyone in a way, because we know his personality, as he's always telling us, is combined of, is of two parts. But equally with Star Trek, you, you know, uh, you've got the same thing again with Kirk and Spock, you know, you've got that relationship or McCoy and Spock, you've got these kind of yin and yang qualities very much in that kind of Holmes and Watson mold. Well, also you could argue that Gene Roddenberry, uh, the, the, the creator of Star Trek, actually was sort of combining different parts of his personality into Kirk, Spock and McCoy. Um, and you could argue the same thing about Arthur Conan Doyle. He was 
kind of maybe possibly comparing different parts of putting different parts of himself into both Watson and Sherlock. I think with all these male characters, I think what you're finding is sometimes it's a duo, sometimes it's, you know, three. Um, what you're finding is you're finding different sides to, I would say, a male personality. So, you know, like, I guess Kirk is kind of like the impulsive, um, like sort of, um, brave heart of, of the man. And Spock is the kind of cool, calm, collected, um, rational side of, uh, of, uh, uh, of the man. And then, you know, McCoy is the sort of empathic, sort of tender, loving side of the person. And you can kind of see that a little bit in Sherlock and Watson. I mean, Sherlock is, is like the intellect and Watson, I'm not saying Watson is a smart, Watson's very smart. And if you ever read Hand of the Baskervilles, the majority of the, of, of the story, it's actually Watson who's doing stuff and Sherlock is, takes a back seat later and comes in later. Um, but, you know, Watson is, is I think, supposed to be more of the kind of emotional, empathic, sort of tender side to the duo. Um, and then Sherlock's the more of the intellect. And, and maybe, maybe Watson's more of the feeling. And I mean, that's kind of like two sides of a, of a male personality, isn't it? Like the, the, the sort of rational, intelligent side and then the sort of feeling, emotional side. Um, and they're often in conflict with each other. So. I guess that's kind of why these characters are sometimes in conflict with each other too. I think Watson sometimes doesn't understand Sherlock's reactions to things. I think sometimes he might think that Sherlock's making the wrong decision. There's definitely, off, I would say fairly often, he's concerned that Sherlock is actually putting somebody in danger. There's sometimes he, sometimes he, actually sometimes he's quite trusting. I'm thinking in Hand of the Baskervilles. To a certain extent, he can be, he's, he's slightly trusting at some points in the, in that story. But sometimes he, he's just like, I, Sherlock, is this the right thing? Cause someone comes to you for help and you're kind of setting them up as bait or something. You know, like later on in the story, it kind of becomes clear that, that Sherlock's actually, I, I don't think Sherlock is intentionally ever endangering anybody's life. But, um, I think sometimes he can get so caught up in, the pursuit of the, of the solution to a problem or the truth of truth of the situation that he can kind of forget that, that there are people who are going to be affected affected by this Sherlock does show does show empathy and when he does show empathy uh, for a victim of a crime it's quite striking because it's not it's not often you know sometimes he does seem very perturbed by a story that somebody tells him that he feels is a real injustice um and then he can become um you know, quite emotional about it. Or I'm thinking in some, in, in the case of, I think it's in, isn't it the Hound of the Baskervilles? He actually cradles somebody in his arms at one point. Uh, I think after they've just been attacked by the Hound. I always thought, I was always like, what? <laughs> like, it seems so out of character. So I wouldn't say he's not an empathic person, but I think it's Watson who's, who's really the one who's smoothing things over. <laughs> it may be also that Holmes is kind of playing a role to some extent. I mean, he there's quite a sort of mystique around him. And, you know, some of that is, there's a reason this character is so iconic. Uh, you know, he's a brilliantly crafted character, but some of that is kind of crafted by himself. And it's maybe no coincidence that Holmes, unlike I would say either Spock or Data, is as well as everything, a brilliant actor and a master of disguise to the extent that I think one of the reasons that we think of Watson as a bit of an idiot is that Watson is this kind of repeated joke that Holmes dresses up as, you know, an old gypsy woman or, you, you know, whatever it is and comes in and has whole conversations. And you do get this in the Baskervilles, I think, don't you? Uh, as well as in many of the stories, has whole conversations with Watson and Watson sort of says, who is this, you know, silly old woman and, and kind of, you know, has no idea that he's talking to his best friend, basically. And so, so Watson, 
is not stupid, but he is quite gullible. He is easily kind of taken in uh, by these kind of things. And yeah, we're, you know, we're supposed to imagine this is because Holmes is a brilliant performer. Whereas I think Data playing Holmes makes it pretty clear Data is not a brilliant performer. I don't think either Data or Spock is particularly great. When they go undercover, there's always a kind of, you know, if you think of even like Star Trek Four, everyone's like, you know, they have, they have to say he's taking too many drugs, you know, to kind of explain Spock's weird behaviour, the fact that he kind of can't fit in. So I think there's that. I think that kind of plays into this idea of Watson being foolish. Interestingly, there's also the fact that he can't do what Holmes can do. Now, to be fair, no one can do what Holmes can do. But there are various times where he sort of has a go at sort of deducing something. And and you think, and you read it and you think, yeah, Watson's got it. That's pretty convincing. And then Holmes is like, yeah, no, you, you, that, that was completely wrong. And and funnily enough, we get that. Geordie tries the same thing. Uh, Geordie tries that in Elementary My Dear Data. He sort of tries to solve a little mini case that they kind of fall, come across along the way. Uh, and it sounds like he's doing quite well. And then Data's like, yeah, that's completely wrong. You know, you've totally got the wrong end of the stick. So I suppose there are these little things that slightly chip away at Watson. The other thing that I think makes Geordie perfect casting for Watson is Watson's kind of, um, although Holmes is very, you know, by the time you get to the, the Cumberbatch one, there's this kind of thing of, you know, is Holmes gay? What's, what's his kind of attitude towards women? He, he seems totally uninterested in women, apart from this one woman, Irene Adler, who he was kind of, uh, he's he the only woman he seems, he seems to have noticed. Watson, on the other hand, seems to pretty much fall in love with every woman who walks into their rooms. You know, the way he writes about women, he's sort of falling over himself to say how beautiful and how amazing and how incredible and, you know, sort of otherworldly these women were. He just seems kind of a bit like Geordie. He's slightly hopeless with these women somehow because he's just in awe of every woman who walks through the door somehow. So I suppose, you, you know, there are elements in the original stories of Watson as being a slightly comic character, but I think they're kind of... They're quite subtle and he does have a lot to offer. And he, he's not, he's not a kind of bumbling idiot. He, he is someone that you, he's very loyal. He's got many good qualities. You know, there's a reason that Holmes trusts him and values him and appreciates him. And it's not just the fact that, you know, as, as Data says to Georgie, your job is to sit there and write about how brilliant I am. Although obviously that's a kind of, that's sort of an element of it. But I think, you know, Watson has something, he does have something to offer. He is kind of an important character in his own right. I mean, whether, you know, I don't know. I mean, Geordie's Watson and Data's Holmes, whether you kind of quite get a sense of that. You kind of get, Geordie's just there to support his friend, if you know what I mean. He's not even particularly familiar with these stories himself and he's kind of just going along with it. But I mean, you know, ultimately, as you say, both of them kind of have to step aside because it becomes this story about Moriarty and Picard. And that, I suppose, is where that episode, I think, really becomes more interesting. And it's noticeable that when they do come back after this lengthy break, because there was this famous legal problem and they realised they shouldn't have used these characters because the Conan Doyle estate was going to sue them or bill them or whatever. When they finally came back and were allowed to bring these characters back... We don't see Data dressing up again, or we do. We do very briefly see Data dressing up again, but the episode is not a kind of another holodeck uh, period costume romp with Data as Holmes. It's actually an episode all about Moriarty and Picard dealing with Moriarty and that kind of dynamic again. And I think it's very interesting what Next Gen does with Moriarty as this character who becomes very significant for Star Trek because you know the Doctor in Voyager was originally in some of the early um, notes for Voyager described as a Moriarty character as the Moriarty Doctor because that was the idea they and and again with Vic Fontaine you know this idea of these kind of holograms with this quite serious sort of existential element of the hologram and knows it's a hologram Moriarty is a very sympathetic character he's not a kind of two dimensional villain and I mean 
the way Doyle writes Moriarty, Moriarty only appears in one story, one Sherlock Holmes story. But again, he seems, although there's something kind of diabolical about him, he's also kind of a gentleman. He kind of plays by the rules. Uh, he's a sort of reasonable man. And I think when it comes to adaptations of that character, Moriarty is a character who sort of massively outlived his space in the actual canon. You know, he's in one short story in the canon, but obviously a very iconic one because he kills Sherlock Holmes. But in kind of subsequent versions of the story, he becomes this kind of major recurring character and, and the kind of arch villain and the nemesis and so on, uh, to the extent that, you know, the, the BBC, the Cumberbatch uh, Sherlock, they're always trying to bring Moriarty back, even though they've killed him off and they have to keep finding ways to keep him involved because it feels like it's not that story if that villain is not kind of coming back. He, and to some extent, Irene Adler, you get that a little bit with some of the modern versions, but Moriarty is the character who is kind of ripped out of the canon and given this much bigger role, almost as if The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes was a battle of wits between these two men, which is very much, you know, not the case in the original stories. Well, no, there's lots of other villains in the original stories. <clears throat> there's a blackmailer who's very, very distressing and disturbing. There's, you know, I mean, there's like outright murderers. There's um, people who... Um, I would say, don't necessarily murder, but they destroy other people's lives. He's, there's a countless number of villains. So yeah, so it's interesting that Moriarty is the one that's stuck the most. I think, I guess it's because he's the one that, you know, uh, plunged Sherlock to his death. But I think also because Watson sort of refers to him as the, the criminal who's like a master criminal, whose kind of intellect is equal to Sherlock's. And I think the idea is that Moriarty is this person behind a lot of stuff. Like he's, he may not be directly committing crimes himself, but he's the, he's the master, I would say, godfather behind it all. And, um, and he's got his fingers in lots of pies and he's got a network and everything. And I think that's what makes him seem a bit more frightening, I think, because it's the idea that Moriarty could do something to you from very far away and you would never know it was Moriarty that came and you know, struck you down. It would be one of his henchmen or some other person that was connected to him. I think the sort of adaptations of Moriarty are more varied than the adaptations of Sherlock. I think every culture has its own Sherlock and every generation has its own Sherlock. But Moriarty seems to change with every adaptation of his character, like completely. Uh, and some of them work and some of them don't. And I think maybe that's partly because of what we think of as frightening or what we think of as crime maybe changes over time uh, and what we think of as a master criminal maybe changes depending on our culture or our time period uh, whereas I think maybe we have I think maybe Sherlock himself well he's a more more of a drawn character isn't he because he's in all the stories most of them anyway um, and Moriarty like you say is only in one but maybe it's because um, we have a more uh, defined, defined idea of what we think Sherlock is and who we think Sherlock is than we think of Moriarty Irene Adler, like you said, yet again, is a character who changes almost with every uh, adaptation uh, and and portrayal of her. Uh, and I think people are particularly fascinated with Irene Adler because she's the only woman, apparently, that Sherlock might have had an attraction to. And I think there's something about the fact that Sherlock doesn't have relationships with women that I think particularly titillates a modern audience uh, in the way that people are kind of obsessed with Spock having a romantic relationship with somebody. And so um, that's very odd, this kind of like obsession with, um, I don't know, emotionally repressed men. 
but I, yeah. actually, I wouldn't say it's just the two of them. I think it's something that you see in culture. Because um, I, I just think emotionally oppressed men must be pretty unpleasant to live with. But who knows? <laughs> so, you know, so I think that's one of the things that people are interested in. But Moriarty's an interesting character. I, I don't know. I think the Moriarty in Star Trek, I think is like, he's a villain, but at the same time, he's got kind of a point, you know, he's trying to continue to exist, you know, and so he leads to this kind of debate and argument about what is sentience. Uh, and in a way, that's not really a, a villainous discussion, if you see what I'm saying. Uh, it's not that he wants to uh, gain wealth for himself, it's that he's trying to survive. Uh, and I'm not sure that's really what the Moriarty, I guess you could say he was kind of arguing he wanted his crime his crime empire to survive. Um, but I'm not sure that's really the, what the Moriarty of Sherlock's, of the original Moriarty was trying to do. So in a way, the Moriarty of Star Trek Next Generation is a villain, but he's kind of a sympathetic villain. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the Moriarty in Next Gen is much more of a sympathetic character, certainly than Conan Doyle's Moriarty. As much as Conan Doyle's Moriarty is sort of a man of honour. He can kind of, uh, you know, there's a sort of sense of equivalence between him and Holmes. He's also described as being this, uh, the kind of the most evil, the most depraved, the most wicked villain that kind of ever villained. Uh, you, you know, there is a, a kind of sense of his absolute terrible awfulness uh, that is 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 very different from the kind of sympathetic Moriarty that we get in Next Gen. I mean, interestingly, I do think that the idea of that kind of sympathetic Moriarty, you can almost trace back to Nicholas Meyer's book, because what Nicholas Meyer does with The 7% Solution is presents an alternative history of what happened during that period where, I mean, basically where, you know, Conan Doyle kills off Holmes in this battle with Moriarty, where they both go over the side of the waterfall. And then several years later, well, like over a decade later, I think in real time, but several, three or four years, maybe later in, in kind of in universe time, uh, Holmes sort of comes back from the dead. And it turns out that he wasn't ever dead uh, to begin with. And he's been um, sort of lying low while he smokes out the rest of Moriarty's kind of criminal gang one way or another. But basically, so that's the explanation. The explanation that Maya gives is a different one, which is that Holmes is kind of effectively having a sort of breakdown and as well as this terrible cocaine addiction and is uh, persecuting Moriarty, who was his maths tutor uh, when he was a child. And there's this kind of mystery. Why is Holmes fixated on this poor innocent man who's not who's not a criminal at all? Who's just this sort of innocent maths tutor? Uh, and then it's Sigmund Freud. This is a big spoiler. Sorry for the seven percent solution. Sigmund Freud at the very end of the novel and indeed at the end of the film discovers through hypnosis that Holmes Holmes's mother was having an affair with Moriarty, uh, and so that's the kind of the the the, the deep childhood, which which kind of you could say ex- explains an awful lot about Sherlock Holmes. Who knows? Whatever. But but so Moriarty is essentially a kind of sympathetic character in that in that he's this kind of persecuted innocent figure. So Maya sort of plays this joke of saying, "What if Moriarty, who's the kind of ultimate villain, was not a villain at all?" And it, this was the one case where Sherlock didn't understand what was going on. At, you know, completely failed to to perceive things accurately. But in doing so, he sort of creates that idea of the sort of sympathetic Moriarty, which I feel somehow must feed into this idea of the Moriarty we see in Next Gen, who is basically saying, yeah, you think I'm going to behave like this fictional character who's a villain, but I'm I'm not. Just And, and he says, just because someone 
he says strikingly some Englishman wrote me in a book now I don't know who wrote that line but Arthur Conan Doyle was Scottish not English so I imagine that the, the Doyle fans might be not be totally happy about that but you, you know anyway he, he he basically says you know why would you expect me to behave like this sort of two-dimensional character behaved I'm a real person I have uh, you know real needs and wishes and and so on and I think it's an interesting it's interesting that Moriarty is the character who who first of all escaped from the kind of Holmes canon of being just in that one little story uh, and became this kind of larger than life character who kind of does as you said gets recreated by every generation I mean the Andrew Scott Moriarty is kind of terrifying. He's almost like the Joker, isn't he? He's this kind of crazy maniac. Some of them are much more smooth and kind of sophisticated. Uh, the Jared Harris in the Downey Jr. films is a bit more, but maybe you might think more sort of classic in that sense, but also quite scarily kind of cold and evil. Uh, it, the, I think Moriarty is a little bit like the master in Doctor Who, you know, this kind of antagonist to Sherlock Holmes. And in some ways, as much as Sherlock has to be sort of in little ways kind of tweaked and reinvented, the master can be reinvented more or the, the Moriarty character can be reinvented in more kind of dramatic ways somehow. But Next Gen absolutely takes him He's a villain, but he's only a villain by necessity. His, his, you know, his means are dubious, but actually what he wants is really totally reasonable in some ways. And we feel very sympathetic to him and very sorry for him in a way. I always felt like Moriarty, I always felt like there were other characters in Star Trek that were also like Moriarty, but that weren't, haven't really been linked to him, I suppose. Like, I feel like Khan is a bit like Moriarty, you know, in Space Seed, don't get me wrong, he's definitely villainous you know i mean for one thing he is created out of a eugenics war and you know believes in racial purity and all that sort of stuff um but he you know he he's kind of acting out of necessity in that episode and then later on i feel like i mean i guess he's kind of crazy maybe moriarty isn't crazy but he feels like a very moriarty character to me he's like the one sort of as adversary to Kirk, you know, it's like, it's this idea of, of the hero and then the anti-hero or maybe not the hero, the hero and the villain, the, the nemesis. That's what I'm looking for. Actually, that's the word I'm looking for. Funny enough, Star Trek nemesis. No, um, that's the word I'm looking for. It's not the anti-hero. It's like, it's like the, the, the complete sort of opposite of the hero, but yet they're also kind of similar. I, I don't know. I always have a problem when adaptations of Sherlock pull Moriarty out of the hat too early. And I feel, I feel like he's the big guns. I feel like they should bring him in like later on. I feel like they should let Sherlock s solve some crimes first, you, you know, to, to defeat other villains. And then later on discover that Moriarty is behind a lot of the things that he, you know, that he's um been, been battling against or whatever. Um, but I feel like they bring Moriarty out so quickly that he almost becomes cartoonish. It's like, here's Sherlock, so there must be Moriarty around the corner. You know, like, the, like a pair almost. Um, and so in the, in the Next Generation episodes, I was quite glad they did something slightly different with Moriarty. Because when they immediately, when I was watching the first, you know, um, Elementary, My Dear Data, and, and then, you know, Moriarty sort of pops off, I was like, oh man, it wasn't even like 20 minutes into the episode and already we have Moriarty. You know, and I kind of felt the same way about uh, the new adaptation, um, the Sherlock BBC adaptation, I felt like Moriarty was brought in way, way, way too early, you know, and, so, and sub subsequent seasons after that have suffered because they've never been able to come back from that. They should have brought him in, like, I guess they didn't know how many seasons they were going to have, but they should have brought him in, like, in season four or something, you know? And there should have been this build-up to meeting Moriarty because uh, we all know he exists. We all know he's the, the main nemesis 
you know, to, to Sherlock. So we're waiting for him. So make us wait longer, give us some anticipation. But I felt like with TNG, they did it quite well because they brought him in early, um, but they had a twist on it, which is that, you know, he's actually fighting for survival, for his own survival as a as a sentient hologram. But when I first saw him, I thought, oh, they've done that typical thing that people like adapting Sherlock Holmes do, is, which is that they bring him in almost immediately because he's not... He's not the first villain that, you know, you encounter when you're reading the Sherlock Holmes stories. There's lots of other characters before that, like chronologically, by the time you get to him. And I feel like, you know, some of the recent adaptations of him, like you said, are better than others, but they are all quite nightmarish. You know, he's actually quite scary. And when I read the, you know, the, um, it's the final problem, isn't it? I think it's called with the story that he's in i don't i don't remember finding him nightmarish i mean i think i, I think i was more fri- frightened by you know like um the speckled band you know the story or, or or the hound of the baskervilles um and the bogs out on the moor and so, sort of more ele- a, a, a elemental kind of aspects of the stories than actual individuals um but more recent moriarty's are actually quite villainous and, and horrible. It's funny you mentioned the speckled band, actually. That takes me back. That is one that I do remember reading as a child and being like really scared and horrified by. Because I, I think ho- the home stories, they can be like quite sort of tidy little mysteries. And sometimes though they go quite dark and they and it is the ones where there's something I mean interestingly, you know, talking about Freud, where there's something kind of uncanny or there's something kind of dark and mysterious. Or, or like the Hound of the Baskervilles, there's this kind of a lot of the stories, there's this kind of occult element or this kind of magical element that it always is ultimately resolved in a kind of rational way, very much like Star Trek, to be honest. I mean, mostly in Star Trek, that, that is the kind of outcome is that there's a kind of rational scientific explanation for everything. But along the way, there's there sort of appears to be something otherworldly, appears to be something freakish going on. Definitely, that's the case with The Hand of the Baskervilles. I mean, The Speckled Band, it's more just this kind of horror of this is a spoiler for the speckled band, but you could say elementary my dear data spoils it slightly because you have that scene where the snake falls off the off the the bell pull outside the outside the house that's marked with the red headed league and this kind of homes pastiche. But the story of the speckled band is this um, woman who's died in her room, and it's her. Is he a stepfather? I think he must be a stepfather who's who's killed her, and the the ingenious way that he's killed her is by letting a snake through. A speckled viper through a ventilation shaft that then climbs down the bell pull, which kind of drapes down onto her bed and it climbs into bed with her and, and, and then stings her. And then her sister moves into the room and is intended to kind of be the next target. And fortunately, Sherlock Holmes uh, gets her to vacate the room and he and Watson stay up in the dark uh, and sit there sort of for hours in the dark, not knowing what's going on until they are sort of aware that something has come into the room, but they can't quite... Watson never sees the snake. I mean, interestingly, uh, Holmes sees it and is kind of beating it away and then it disappears. But there's this real kind of horror of the kind of the unknown of the the that they know that something terrible is happening in that room because someone's died there in these very strange, mysterious circumstances. But only Holmes... You see, that's the thing. Only Holmes knows... I mean, Holmes always knows fairly early on what the answer is, but he doesn't reveal it until the end. And there's that weird sense that he makes himself part of the mystery. Holmes is, is the enigma himself because 
he doesn't tell Watson what he's thinking until he's proved it all and found all the evidence and gathered everything together. And then he does this kind of great coup de theatre at the end. And, and for any one of these kind of detectives that follows, who kind of gathers everyone together for this big speech at the end where they kind of explain everything. And in some ways, that's something that I think Spock sometimes does. I mean, I was quite struck watching The Devil in the Dark. Spock realises clearly quite early on in The Devil in the Dark that those round objects are actually eggs, or he has a very strong suspicion that they're eggs, um, to the extent that he says something and Kirk says, asks him to speculate. And he says, because McCoy's already had a laugh at him for thinking that a silicon-based creature is possible, he basically says, I, I'll decline to speculate because I don't want to be mocked by Dr. McCoy. So again, throughout the whole of that episode, Spock is kind of holding on to this key piece of information that he's deduced that no one else has kind of realised. And I think that is a big part of the kind of Holmes-Watson dynamic and of the way that these stories work is that Sherlock is always so many steps ahead of everyone else. And there's something kind of, for the reader, I suppose, there's there's something kind of thrilling about that. But they are kind of a trick because you never... It's not even like, and the same is probably true with Agatha Christie and so on, to be honest. I mean, as a reader, you kind of like to think you're going to be able to solve the problem yourself. But I have to say, I, I, I felt like by the time I'd listened to like 50 odd of these stories, I was getting to the point where I could sometimes guess small elements of what was going on. Do you know what I mean? Maybe just by familiarity, a bit like Watson tried to kind of trying to have a go. But there's still always so much more going on that Sherlock Holmes has picked up on that, you know, no one else could possibly, and, and, and they couldn't because it's impossible and it's a kind of contrivance of the, of the fiction. But that's kind of part of what is so amazing about it. He is like, as Watson says to him in one story, you know, a few hundred years ago, you'd have been burnt as a witch basically because your powers of kind of, of understanding narrative. I suppose that's what it is. He he kind of almost has access to the stuff that only the author should know, you know, writing a mystery. I feel that they also have a flair for the dramatic. So even though they're both suppressing their emotions and they're trying to appear cool and calm and collected, I think they do like having information that other people don't know. I think they like knowing something before other people. I think they like having, maybe sometimes kind of holding that over information over other people kind of sort of there's a level of uh, professional pride there perhaps but also i think that it is that the, the character themselves the characters themselves want to be like ta-da you know um um i think spock does have that actually and i think also um sherlock does as well um and i think in countless episodes of star trek you'll see spock know something and withhold it or say it later or, um, I mean, even in the most recent, um, Kelvin timeline, you know, this, he knows some information in one of the films or something. And like McCoy is like, no, I think it's Kirk that turns to him and says, sort of says, like, when were you going to tell us? And he's like, well, when it became, when it became, you know, appropriate and now it is, or when it became, you know, timely. Um, I think that also in the original series, even I think Spock has a flair for the dramatic. I think he's like, and this, but it's this big thing that I've discovered. Uh, and um, and I think that that's also Sherlock as well. I think that, I mean, Sherlock, you know, he'll 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 get a dog. Um, I mean, for, in one of the episodes, he asks um, Watson to go find a dog, but he doesn't say it's a dog. He says, I only trust Toby. And Watson's like, who's that? And he gives this, he gives Sherlock this address. The Sherlock gives Watson this address. Um, and Watson goes to the address and Toby turns out <laughs> to be like a sheepdog. Yeah. And he thought Toby was a person. And so then, then, you know, Sherlock's like, I want Toby because Toby can scent whatever they're looking for, you know, the person they're looking for. 
And then he just lets Toby lead them all over the city, um, you know, sniffing out the scent. But it's like, it's like, you know, come on, Watson. And then like Sherlock runs off into the distance, you know, his, his coat flapping. There's a high level of theatricality, I think, in, in, in the, in this, in these stories. So yeah, I think the devil in the dark is a good example. I think Spock knows what's going on well before a lot of the other characters do in the episode. Um, I think he's also really open-minded and imaginative in the episode. Like the fact that he can sort of look beyond the, it's, it is that kind of, that that quote, isn't it? Like whatever remains, how, like, you know, whatever, how impossible it is, is the, actually the, how, how probable it is. I mean, is actually, actually the case, you know, like he's, he's, he's kind of able to sort of look mm. beyond the Thinking outside the box, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. And see, Thinking outside the box, and Sherlock, Sherlock does that a lot as well. It's their imagination that allows them to see beyond. And it's partly that kind of confidence that the puzzle can be solved. I mean, I think you see that absolutely in the Undiscovered Country, because the Undiscovered Country, aside from having this line where Spock claims that his ancestor said this line, which is famous Sherlock Holmes line, and therefore inspires all these kind of bizarre theories of, you know, is Sherlock related to, you know, is Sherlock a real person as far as Spock is concerned? Or is it actually Arthur Conan Doyle that was his ancestor and, and that that's who he's related to, which would be another way of kind of glossing it. It's this kind of sense that you often get in the Sherlock stories of of information contradicting other information and some, something must be wrong. And it, it seems like it's impossible to resolve that mystery. And everyone else is sort of saying, you know, well, what are we supposed to do? Scotty's kind of throwing his hands up in the air. Everyone else is sort of saying this doesn't make any sense. You know, we don't know how to deal with it. And Spock is the one who sort of basically says, well... We're going to work it out. We're going to treat it quite rationally. We're going to solve this problem. There is a solution to this problem that is going to make sense. It's going to make rational sense and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And so he begins this sort of quite methodical investigation. But he also characteristically, you know, what I was saying about Spock or Holmes withholding information, he puts that tracker on Kirk and he won't tell anyone what he's up to, even, you know, in the undiscovered country. And, and someone asks him, because he makes this comment about knowing precisely where Kirk is. And, and and someone says, you know, how do you, I think Valerius probably says him, I mean, maybe he's got a good reason not to, you know, trust anyone he, if he thinks there's a kind of, um, you, you know, sort of spies on board or whatever. But he, he basically declines to share the information that he has, even at the beginning of that investigation, going right the way through it. The interesting thing about undiscovered country, though, is it's not Spock who works out then it might be Valerius, it's Kirk. Because there's that scene where Kirk comes back on board and he he sort of says to Spock, have you got a minute? And they go off and they have this kind of whispered conversation in the background that we can't quite hear. And that seems to be the point where it's where it's come from. And it sort of makes you think, you know, what does Kirk know that Spock doesn't? Is this kind of Kirk's intuition coming into play? Is this a kind of limitation of Spock? Or is it just, because, and then we find out that it's because he's, Kirk has actually pieced together something that we as viewers of the film probably haven't, well, certainly when I first watched that film, I hadn't clocked, which is that Valerius is the, you know, where did that recording come from? And Valerius was the one who provided the recording, or at least could have been. So there's that kind of sense, it's the weird sense that Spock goes through all the motions of being Sherlock Holmes. And then it's actually Kirk who comes back on board and says, uh, I need to let you know about this. And have you considered this? And Spock says, something like yes it's possible it's possible isn't it and it's almost like he'd ruled it out up until that point he'd ruled out that possibility maybe that's why he's so angry about it. i think yeah i think mm. especially think this sort of spock has a bit of a blind spot when it comes to valeris maybe because of the fact that she's his protege uh but also i guess narratively it makes sense because you have to link what kirk says about his son back to the trial and and also to his changing attitudes to the klingons 
but also Kirk is one of the main characters. Kirk's the main hero of Star Trek, um, no, the original series. I guess you could argue he was supposed to be before Spock's popularity kind of took over that. But um, so I think they have to give Kirk the honor of solving the mystery. Although I don't actually feel like that's quite. I think I've always thought that doesn't really make much sense to me. I understand he had this piece of information that Spock didn't have, but I personally feel uh, they they kind of did that so they could give Kirk the honor of solving the mystery rather than it making a huge amount of sense. There's an interesting moment in the film where before he puts the tracker on Kirk, he he wants to go aboard the the Klingon ship with Kirk, and Kirk says no, uh, and he says you may be right, and then puts the tracker on on Kirk. And that's exactly what he says right before he goes into the radiation you know, the engine chamber in the Wrath of, Wrath of Khan. I think before Spock does something that perhaps maybe other people don't agree with, he goes, you may be right. I mean, he doesn't always do it, but sometimes it's like he's he's faking agreeing. He's faking com- like sort of agreement before he goes and does something completely different. And I sometimes feel like Sherlock does that too. Like rather, I, I think both of them are not people who are into confrontation. I think both of them could sort of handle themselves when they are confronted. But I think countless times, um, I'm thinking of which which episode is it where... I think it is the speckled band, isn't it? The speckled band where the stepfather comes and threatens Holmes. And Sherlock doesn't really respond. I mean, he sort of, sort of is a little bit sassy and kind of sort of, sort of shows the, sort of says you can show yourself out kind of, um, in a more Victorian language than that. But, um, he doesn't rise to the challenge. Like, I don't feel like Sherlock is somebody who goes around looking for, for a physical fight or an argument. He's much more step back and let that person rant and rave, which I think is very Spock-like. He, he'll step back and let McCoy rant and rave, and then he'll come in with a sharp little barb. Or he'll be like, oh, that's <laughs> all right, and then he'll go and sacrifice himself. You're right, fish. yeah. And so I think that's kind of also something that links the two of them, that you know they're going to quietly make their own decisions later on, sort of aside from people pushing them or pulling them in different directions. Yeah, I, I, I personally do feel that Spock should have solved the mystery in the undiscovered country because Kirk had all this action, you know, on, in the, on the sort of penal colony. And, you know, I feel like with Kirk, there is this, this is storyline in that film about him coming to terms with the Klingons and the death of his son. And I don't really feel like him suddenly figuring out a puzzle is really in keeping with that storyline. But I think that they had to, weave him talking weave the conversation that he has in his quarters with Valeris into it somehow and give him the honor of solving the the crime i suppose solving the puzzle it wasn't until i watched it this week that it even really occurred to me that it wasn't spock that solved the crime i feel investigating you almost might sort of assume that he did which is another weird parallel with sherlock holmes actually because there's always this thing i mean you said that, that when he he slightly misleads people in that way he does that a lot with the detectives you know he'll often give the encourage the detectives to think that they're pursuing the right track when in fact they're, they've completely got it wrong you know he doesn't really share his information until the end and then there's this weird sense that they always take the credit for whatever he's discovered anyway and he doesn't even seem to mind really um that you know inspector lestrade or whatever makes his career off of um basically taking credit for the things that sherlock holmes has done but you're right he's he tends to sort of 
avoid conflict, I suppose, generally, even though we know that he's, you know, a proficient boxer and he, you know, has studied martial arts and he, you know, all this stuff in the, say, the Robert Downey Jr. films, where he's much, which is much more a kind of action movie franchise, really, kind of plays up this sort of action hero Holmes. But actually, he generally does try to sort of avoid that. Uh, very much like, I suppose you could say, you know, Spock with his nerve pinch or whatever, he's pretty good in a fight, but he probably, he's not going to be the one starting the fight, that's for sure. So there's definitely that kind of parallel there. Yeah, I love those films, um, the Robert Downey Jr. films. I really enjoy them, but I don't feel like they are Sherlock and Watson. And in a way, I almost wish that they'd taken uh, those characters and they'd made them original characters. Like They'd made them, I don't know, Victorian sleuth, uh, original, you know, un- un- unknown characters. But I can see that, you know, they, want- they wanted to adapt Sherlock Holmes and they wanted to appeal to a certain audience. And I feel like the modern Sherlock... It's a little bit more of an original adaptation of the series because Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss uh, do actually try to take the old stories and put a modern spin on them. Uh, whereas I feel like the Guy Ritchie films are completely like different. You know, it's interesting because in the in the in the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, the BBC Sherlock, uh, Watson actually does call Sherlock Spock. I think he does. I think mm. he does it more than once actually. But I, think he's defi- I noticed that in the Baskervilles episode, yeah, yeah. he's just calm down spot um, or something. Yeah. And um, the eulogy that Watson delivers at Sherlock's graveside feels very much like the eulogy that Kirk delivers um, at, Sp- at Spock's funeral in The Wrath of Khan. And he says something like, I can't remember what it is, some- what it is now, but it's something like about being human. And I think w- Watson also says something about being human, which is interesting because... That's, uh, I mean, it's particularly interesting for, for Spock since it's kind of insulting since he's tried to spend so much of his life trying not to be human. Um, but, um, but it's also kind of sweet as well. But it's an interesting thing to say, um, about Sherlock because I don't know if that, if he ever really is accused of being inhuman. I mean, I think we can fairly well assume that Stephen Moffat has watched The Wrath of Khan. I guess we can probably guess that John Watson in the BBC Sherlock has watched The Wrath of Khan and that maybe he's kind of almost quoting it deliberately. I mean, there is this weird, it does almost play into that idea, like I said, that kind of game, you know, this idea of the game, it's kind of a different game of a sort of intertextual game that's being played between these stories and drawing those kind of parallels. And you're right, he he calls him Spock, I think, when when Cumberbatch's Sherlock is saying, because it's in the Baskervilles episode, and he believes that his ability to control his emotions is being compromised, that he's kind of becoming overwhelmed by emotion. And that's why, um, so it's quite appropriate in a way. That's when Watson sort of says, calm down, Spock, as if it's like, you know, Spock saying, I can't, I can't control my emotions. I can't kind of remain rational, essentially. But it definitely sort of, yeah, I, th- I don't think that's a coincidence that that, that, that line at the funeral is, seems like an echo of, of Spock's funeral again. I think that is a kind of, again, an attempt to draw a sort of parallel between these characters. And there is something about these characters, you know, that they are maybe one reason that they have endured for so long, both Holmes and Watson, but also Kirk and Spock, is that they are almost kind of archetypal characters. There is something sort of, they can be sketched out very, they've got a very strong, you know, like Sherlock Holmes famously, his sort of silhouette is kind of very recognisable because of the, the hat and the pipe and everything. Do you know what I mean? That's all you need to see. Spock, you could say the same thing with the ears and so on. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of sense that these are very iconic characters one way or another. They've become these kind of iconic figures. And they're not so 
totally on that they, they do have to exist in relation to to others do you know what i mean they have to you can't really have spock without kirk in a sense and you can't have i mean you can have Holmes without watson but he's kind of sort of part of the package somehow that um when you get Holmes without watson it sort of feels like something is missing somehow there is something that kind of humanity is missing and some of the home stories are narrated by Holmes rather than by watson and some of them in fact are about mysteries that watson wasn't involved in that Holmes is telling him about but at least you've got that element of he's he's telling the story to watson so you kind of got watson's um take on it somehow that seems like it's an important part of the dynamic so i think that one of the reasons why these are such beloved characters that, well, one of the reasons why Spock and I think Sherlock are such beloved characters and that they do kind of echo on through generations of fans is because, you know, you do have those characters in, in stories that are strong hero type characters, you know, where perhaps maybe their um, strength is like brawn strength, you know? And I think one of the reasons why Sherlock and Spock appeal to people is because their strength is intellectual strength. Um, their, their power is intellectual. Um, and they are great intellects, shall we say. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. Um, so that's one thing. But I think also, like you were saying that, you know, you can't imagine Sherlock without Watson. Uh, I think that it's also these kind of close, um, bonds between male characters as well. I think, uh, there's a lot of stories and we know we've talked about this before in the past, like with Gilgamesh, um, you know, and, and other, other sort of stories like that, that there's this, I think, interest in relationships and friends, friendships, close friendships between men. And I think, um, you know, it's like the duo, you know, it's like, you know, Sherlock and Holmes and, and Kirk and Spock, although Batman and Robin, Batman and Robbie, I mean, Kirk and Spock, I suppose mm. is also McCoy, but, mm. um, and, the sort of idea that these men you're saying mccoy is the third wheel, third wheel. <laughs> Kirk and Spock's i think like the three of them make more sense together I think, yeah. but, but i think it is implied kind of it isn't always implied in yeah. in star trek that kirk and spock are perhaps maybe closer you know i mean it, it, it that they spend more time with each other maybe than than they than all three of them do together yeah, I think that's but true. all three go camping together so you know what do i know and I think that you see that again and again in TV series and films and fiction um, about this close bond between men. Um, and often they can be quite different and they can kind of sort of, you know, sort of bounce off each other. And, and, and be, they're almost like different sides of the same coin, kind of. And I feel that very much with Sherlock and Watson. And I think that's what appeals to people a lot. People like to think of them as really good friends and that, you know, that Sherlock is going to come to Watson's rescue and that Watson's going to save Sherlock from basically overdosing on cocaine or whatever. <laughs> and these kind of intense, they're not just, it, they're, they're very intense friendships. I mean, there is a reason that there's this kind of, is there a sort of homoerotic subtext? There, there is some kind of subtext that's often played on, you, you know, whether it's in the BBC version, people often think that they're a couple when they're not. In the Downey Jr. films, there's kind of, you know, they end up, rolling around on top of each other. You know, it's kind of played for laughs one way or another. I mean, with Kirk and Spock, obviously, we had that with the kind of slash fiction. I'm sure that among the cornucopia of Holmes' extended universe kind of fiction, there must be some that goes in that direction as well. But I think it's also in, you know, we see these kind of iconic pairings elsewhere. I mean, one series that, you know, as well as the BBC version, there's also the... um 
the American version of that elementary, which has a female Watson. But again, there's that kind of, as far as I know, they are just friends in, in that, despite, you know, changing the gender of one of them. But actually it occurred to me, you know, Mulder and Scully is very much in some ways a kind of Holmes Watson dynamic in that she's the medical doctor. He's the one with the kind of wild theories. I mean, it's slightly turned on its head because it's not so obvious in that instance that he's, you know, Mulder isn't always right necessarily. And Scully has a lot more expertise and kind of, she has a lot more to contribute in some ways than Watson does. But at the same time, they're, they're sort of playing on that dynamic. And again, there's that kind of tension of will they, won't they? And kind of, you know what I mean? Is it just a friendship? Is it something more? And obviously that changes as the series goes on. But you also get, you know, all these kind of series where you have a kind of an everyman character and a kind of genius character, you know, Mawson Lewis, uh, the Doctor Who, again, you, you know, the Doctor and the Companion is basically the same. The Companion is basically, that's what Watson is. He's a companion who follows the kind of magical hero around and kind of um, asks the questions that the reader needs to ask in order to understand what's going on. You know, there is something about this story that um, can be kind of remade again and again. Even um, House, the TV series House, you know, no coincidence, his name is House, House being the same as a home, as in Holmes, you, you know, uh, it's basically a version, another version of, of Sherlock Holmes in a different sort of context. Well, yeah, just because I think that there is something about the idea of this sort of incredibly intelligent character that can look at a scene that almost anybody would see as just normal or I mean, maybe not normal because there'd be a dead body lying there or something. But like, you know, he, he, everybody else would look and they just see what's on the surface. And Sherlock looks beyond and he sort of deduces from everything in the room. He can see a whole nother picture based on what's there. And I think the idea of just being in the presence of somebody like that, you know, like it's the idea of being in the presence of someone who's super smart, of a genius, of like brilliance, basically, the embodiment of brilliance, intellectual brilliance. And that kind of fits with all these characters. It fits with House, kind of does fit with Mulder, actually. Like, even though he's, you know, not exactly the same kind of character as Sherlock, um, you know, in the sense he does get things wrong. And he's also not really deducing things in the same way. But there is, a, he, he does have these... Brilliant flashes of brilliance, you know. Um, and the doctor definitely is a prime example of that. The doctor is, is this kind of bright, brilliant character. And I think that that's why all the companions want to be with him because it's exciting and it's, it's like being in the presence of genius. And so I think that's kind of one of the reasons why people are so drawn to this character again and again and why they can understand why Watson might hang around when, you know, maybe Sherlock is a bit of a, bit of an idiot sometimes or Sherlock's difficult to deal with or plays his violin at four in the morning or whatever. I think the the sort of tension, the sexual tension that you were talking about, it was definitely there in the new Sherlock adaptation. I think they definitely played on that. Maybe not between the two actors, but they played on it. Like there's a there's some scenes where, yeah, like you said, they're they're mistaken for being couples. Other other sort of stuff like that they kind of they kind of put in there. Well, I think there's absolutely that sense of how exciting it would be to go along with Holmes as Watson does. I mean, as much as it's kind of a thankless task being Watson as Geordie discovers, it's quite thrilling to be in the presence of that person. And in a way, again, there's this weird sense that, you know, Doyle is sort of in that role, isn't he? He's almost, as the writer, he's kind of almost along for the ride in these adventures, but he feels very ambivalent about it. You know, he wanted to get rid of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, you know, you were talking about Moriarty and the fact that he only comes up in that one story and, and should, um, 
other versions of Sherlock sort of saved Moriarty for later. Well, as far as Conan Doyle was concerned, he'd saved Moriarty for the last ever Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, and it's only because of this massive fan campaign to bring him back, coupled with the you know temptation of being paid loads of money, that Doyle essentially did bring him back over and over and over again. So there's that kind of ambivalence there, but there's also that sort of sense of, by writing this character of Watson, Doyle almost writes himself into the story. I mean, we talk about kind of Mary Sue character. Watson is this kind of weird character that allows the author to kind of s- sort of semi-fictionalise themselves into the narrative somehow as a way of kind of going along with it. And it's interesting when you think about, I mean, you know, I was uh, saying, you know, are, are there like Sherlock Watson slash fictions and, and so on? We know there's all this kind of fan fiction, all this kind of extended fiction. In, in some ways, the idea of, of writing yourself into the story is almost a kind of a fan fiction gesture in itself. And interestingly, I mean, we talked a bit about Nick Meyer writing Star Trek and writing Sherlock. The other person who's done both of those is Michael Chabon, who obviously is, you know, a big player in, in Star Trek now with Picard, but also uh, wrote a Sherlock story. And I think, um, I believe he said that his the first story that he ever wrote as a child was a kind of a Sherlock, you know, Sherlock Holmes story, basically. And he, in his um, book Maps and Legends, which is obviously where the title of the Picard episode comes from, which is a book of essays, he wrote a whole essay about uh, Sherlock Holmes and fan fiction. And he ends it with this beautiful paragraph. Uh, I'll read you this paragraph because he's sort of talking about the way that, um, I suppose, that we wouldn't have the fan fiction of Star Trek and these kind of other uh, universes without the work of the Sherlockians, these kind of passionate fans who, you know, they p- playing this game, as they called it, basically dedicated themselves very much as Star Trek fans will kind of fill in errors in continuity or kind of apparent discrepancies or so, and will kind of build around the canonical material and try to make sense of it all and and kind of play that game. Um, that the Sherlockians were the ones who kind of really invented that. And then you get all these kind of, both sort of faux history and also kind of, ex, you know, creative output coming off the back of it. But he then ends with this amazing uh, argument that basically all literature is essentially people copying their the the things that they love. You know, that we read we read first and then we write essentially, and that every writer is inspired by the books that have been, you know that they've read when they were younger or or whatever, and that kind of feeds into it. I'll just read you this paragraph. He says, and yet there is a degree to which just as all criticism is in essence Sherlockian, uh, by which he means that kind of game of kind of going in and and poking around and sort of trying to make it all fit. All literature, highbrow or low, from the Aeneid onward is fan fiction. That is why Harold Bloom's notion of the anxiety of influence has always rung so hollow to me. Through through parody and pastiche, allusion and homage, retelling and reimagining the stories that were told before us and that we have come of age loving, amateurs, we proceed, seeking out the blank pages in the map that our favourite writers in their greatness and negligence have left for us, hoping to pass on to our own readers, should we be lucky enough to find any, some of the pleasure that we ourselves have taken in the stuff we love to get in on the game all novels are sequels influence is bliss so there's this kind of sense there i suppose that shaban is is sort of saying the Sherlockians almost um hit on something fundamental about literature and our love of literature and this kind of amazing idea that there's a sort of continuity somehow and star trek of course would be a big a part of that continuity and if star trek's inspired uh you know sherlock holmes inspired star trek we know Star Trek then goes on to inspire the the new BBC Sherlock. You know, there's this kind of sense. Everyone is inspired by their influences and kind of um, one way or another. So, you know, as Shaban is saying, all fiction is fan fiction. Well, he's, you know, Sherlock fan. He's ended up writing a 
Sherlock story and a Star Trek fan who's ended up writing Star Trek. There is that kind of sense of, you know, maybe it sort of all comes around one way or another. It's very much like myths, isn't mm. it? It's like myth telling. So it's like you take a myth and then you're going to tell it to the next person or the next generation. And in doing that, you add your own little flourish in it. You might change a few details here or you might amend a few things, um, put it in a different situation, add some extra characteristics to the characters in the myth. And then before you know it, that becomes the big new myth. And then someone else will interpret that myth. And it's the idea that like, you know, if you ever sort of study Greek myths, uh, you will find that, you know, they're commonly retold again and again in different cult, different cultures in different ways. Uh, and then maybe they weren't originally Greek myths. They came from some other culture, but they were adapted into Greek myth. Um, or even amongst the Greeks themselves, the myths, the same myth can be told in multiple different ways, you know, and in this, in this particular story, you know, she does this and in this particular story, she does that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's imitation, but I wasn't imitation supposed to be the, sincerest form of flattery i mean isn't it like that the idea that we love these stories and so that's why we imitate them just to go back to one of the things you were saying um before about this tension between watson and sherlock one of the things that is interesting is that they show that a lot in the new bbc series but that there's obviously uh, sherlock doesn't have much of a relationship with the opposite sex but watson does get married and in a way the problem with this relationship like Sherlock and Watson or Spock and and Kirk or I guess you could say I don't know about the new elementary series but like you could say with Mulder and Scully is these two these close pairings they can't really let anyone else in do you know what I mean it does and sometimes it's not even to do with um, romantic relationships it's to do with the fact any sort of distraction you know you need your two heroes or hero and heroine however it is you need them out there fighting crime, crusading, adventuring, doing whatever they're doing without the distractions of like partners or lovers or children or employers or do you know what I mean? Or family members. I mean, I know that Sherlock has a brother that comes into it, but he doesn't have to necessarily care for his brother that much, you know? And one of the issues with the new Sherlock series is that they started introducing other things into this pairing, you know, famously introduced his unknown sister the Euros that none of us knew anything about um and it started to get kind of fanficy towards the end of that of that of that see that uh, series because there was all these things about Sherlock that we didn't know about um that somehow sort of kind of twisted him into a slightly different character as soon as you start introducing a family to the sort of brilliant minded hero um you're starting to make that person seem a little more ordinary and less unusual um and less like a hero and more like one of us you know that has parents or siblings or and i don't necessarily have that problem with spock and kirk i'm okay with them having families and relationships and stuff and of course spock has a sister that we just found out about as well yeah <laughs> i was gonna say that's um, an interesting parallel you know, there, yeah but you do notice that none of their relationships with women ever really seem to work out well um, because how can they, because they can't be distracted. I don't mean to say romantically because unless you're reading fan fiction, but, but like they can't be distracted from the attention that they're going to give to each other. Um, and I think you find that again and again in stories about men, men who are two men who are together, who are doing things together. As soon as one of them gets a wife, it causes tension. It it's going to ruin it. Yeah. yeah. And you do get that often in the, in the 
various, particularly the more modern adaptations. I mean, you get that in the second of the Downey Jr. films in particular. They literally throw the wife off a train at one point to get her out of the story, <laughs> effectively. You know, there is that kind of sense of, you know, the, the wife's going to ruin everything. I mean, it's interesting. Yes, Watson gets married in the original Sherlock Holmes stories, but he then has to get unmarried when Sherlock Holmes is brought back from the dead. So conveniently, his wife has died. And there's this weird description of how he basically goes, they almost like go back in time. They, he moves back into the rooms in Baker Street. Everything kind of goes back to how it was. It's very much actually like uh, talking about the X-Files, you know, the recent X-Files revival. One of the things I thought was the strangest about that was having, you know, kind of got Mulder and Scully out of the X-Files that they sort of managed to get them back in to this, you're back at working at the, you know, who gives you someone their job back when they haven't been there for like 15 years or something? And, you know, clearly, I mean, you can see why as like 20 somethings, they were hired by the FBI as, you know, whatever age they are now. It seems, it just seems bizarre to me that they, they just 40 or get, 50 exactly, that they just get given back those old jobs somehow and, and act as if, almost as if nothing's happened in the intervening years. But again, that's what Sherlock and Watson effectively do you know yes he went off and married and kind of had a domestic life and then his wife died and Sherlock died and then you know Sherlock came back to life and and now he's gone back and is is sort of being a bachelor again but there is that again it's that kind of sort of returning almost to the sort of archetypal setup returning to that kind of world and there is something very appealing about that that whole world of kind of Victorian London I think that's part of it isn't it and and they comment on that in elementary my dear data about how the holodeck has recreated Victorian London and I think actually they do quite a good job of it I mean we've talked before about some of the hollow novel episodes you know say Janeway's gothic hollow novel or whatever where the sort of mise-en-scene feels a bit sort of fake and a bit kind of cheap somehow um, I feel like they do a pretty good job in Elementary, My Dear Data, of, you know, wherever that backlog is or however they, you know, summoned up Victorian London. It looks pretty good. It looks like a pretty decent kind of production level Sherlock Holmes story. And there is always that sort of sense with the original stories, although they come up right up to the First World War, some of the later stories, we still always sort of think of Holmes and Watson as being in that sort of Victorian milieu. And I think there is something about the kind of world of Sherlock Holmes and the world of Star Trek that there are these kind of parallels in a way. I mean, the world of Sherlock Holmes is London, this Victorian London. It's almost a bit like Deep Space Nine. It's this, it's this, it's London. It's the heart of, of kind of civilized society or whatever, but there's all these aliens coming and going. There's all these, uh, you know, foreigners, mysterious people with kind of so many of the home stories. They rely on links to other countries, links to the exotic. And I mean, you know, Conan Doyle also wrote the lost world, you know, wrote kind of boys adventure fiction where heroes will kind of travel off to these exotic countries or exotic otherworldly places. You know, there's almost with Holmes, there's that sense of that the whole world kind of comes to London and mixes in London, all their kind of dodgy, shady things, whether it's the Ku Klux Klan or whether it's the Mormons in the very first story, isn't it? You know, all this stuff somehow ends up in London. London is the place everyone sort of seems to end up there. And there's something quite thrilling and exciting about that because it means that as much as London is this sort of genteel place where you can get crammed with crumpets, it's also much more than that. There's this kind of, there's this seedy underbelly, but there's also this kind of it's the it's the empire, I suppose, partly kind of brought to London, isn't it? It's this kind of sense that the whole world is sort of somehow there in the shadows or in the fog. Well, I would argue that London is actually a character in itself in the in the in the stories, um, in a similar way that the Enterprise is a character in Star Trek, um, that the ship itself is a character, and the ship itself is, you know, basically one of the main stories. The way the the 
the sort of main focuses of the show. Um, and I would argue that London is one of the main focuses of the universe of, of, uh, of Sherlock. Um, and I think that you find that in the modern BBC Sherlock as well. They use a lot of very well-known modern parts of London. Uh, there's a lots of shots of Sherlock standing on rooftops looking out at the skyline of London, almost a bit like James Bond would. Uh, and I would say the same thing with James Bond, actually. Um, completely different type of character, but... Um, uh, yeah, again, in films, London is a character in itself. Although one who doesn't need a Watson, James Bond. No, That's an interesting no. well, example, isn't it? Um, he doesn't. Well, he can't have a Watson because he spends... <laughs> He'd all, get in the way. He spends yeah. all his time sleeping <laughs> with women, so he kind of has to have yeah. his uh, his, ten- his tension with a whole bunch of different ladies. When I was t- it's very telling that they had a Sherlock Holmes exhibition at the Museum of London a few years ago, which I went to, which was an exceptional um, exhibition, actually. It was very telling that uh, a big part of that was about Sherlock Holmes, but a big part of it was about a Victorian Edwardian London. And they had lots and lots of artifacts from um, that time period. And they had lots of sort of parts of the exhibit were about what life was like, like how Sherlock and Arthur Conan Doyle and Watson would have lived and the kind of things they would have done down to the, down to the very minute detail, like a whole display of postcards that people sent to each other and how people would send postcards to each other the way we send text messages to each other. So that if you were going to go visit someone in the afternoon, you might send them a postcard that morning saying, I'm going to be with you by five because it was several posts deliveries a day. I mean, nowadays we only have one post delivery a day, but there used to be two for a while when I was younger. And before that in the Victorian era, there used to be posts three or four or five times a day. So the people would send each other simple postcards with very simple little let, uh, messages on them because telegrams were expensive. Uh, and in the similarly in the BBC um, Sherlock production, you see Sherlock texting Watson and, you know, a lot of the sort of texts come up on the screen and everything. And so it's this idea of rooting these stories in a time and a place. They're very applicable to that time and place. And I guess the odd one out with that is Star Trek, because it's not rooted to a time and place that we know. It's rooted to a time and a place that we imagine, uh, that we've created and made up for ourselves. Uh, but not, we haven't made up. Obviously, Gene Roddenberry made up. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, as in the human audience and, and creative endeavor has made it up. But those characters are very rooted in, t- in, in their time and place. Like, there is something logical about Star Trek history and universe. It sort of fits in together. People have made sure it fits in together um, in a way that Sherlock fits into the Victorian era and in the way that the modern Sherlock fits into modern London. So I would say the scene, setting the scene, the locations, and the sort of all the little details, like the postcards, like the text messages, like Sherlock's um, tobacco, you know, like all the little things that they do, you know, like like Watson's war injury, all that kind of stuff are all parts of this puzzle that put together to make this whole story, you know, that we all can believe in kind of. And there's an interesting thing that goes on in both Star Trek and Sherlock Holmes, and indeed in Doctor Who and many of these other kind of universes, of this sort of almost, there's the canon. And you could say in some ways that Conan Doyle is actually not very 
he didn't have, you know, a kind of uh, script supervisor working with him. I mean, there are endless inconsistencies, which I suppose are part of what makes this game that the Schlockians play so uh, complex. Because, you know, even the name of the landlady changes uh, where Watson did he get shot through the shoulder or the leg or do you know what I mean? all, all these kind of details he inadvertently changes because he forgets what he wrote in the previous story but at the same time there is this sense of this kind of corpus of stories and they do often refer back to other stories so he'll put in almost like little ads saying you know oh watson you know you might remember you wrote about this in that that story you chose to call uh, a study in scarlet you know you can almost see like the footnote you know purchase now from your local bookseller or whatever but um but there's also this sense of building up a kind of meta canon around the actual canon of these stories that are sort of vaguely alluded to, but are never written. And so often you'll get this sense when Watson starts telling one story, he sort of, he, either he or Holmes kind of references other stories or other kind of characters who they dealt with, who we never get to hear about, or the, or adventures. I mean, famously, the great rat of Sumatra is the kind of, the icon, the one that's so famous that it crops up in other stories. Um, y- y- you know, I mean, even in the... Um, Talking about Stephen Moffat, there's a line in the Tintin, the Spielberg Tintin movie, which Stephen Moffat was one of the writers on about the Great Rat of Sumatra. So it kind of has escaped, and it and it crops up in Doctor Who as well. You kind of it's escaped from Sherlock Holmes' world, but but that's that's something that's almost kind of fanfic baked into the story, canonical story itself, in that it's there in the canon, but it's a sort of reference to a story that doesn't exist in the canon and that probably never will, but that is is a sort of tease for the reader to kind of use their own imagination on to kind of um, go to town on somehow. So maybe that's part of it that both, and Star Trek does the same thing with kind of references to, you know, sometimes to things that we've seen, but also sometimes to things that we have never seen on screen. And we just get these kind of tantalizing allusions to something. And we sort of think, wow, I wonder what, what that place is like, or I wonder what that tastes like, or I wonder, you, you know, they're kind of just things that are thrown out there to kind of make the universe feel more real and more huge and complicated somehow. So I think, again, that's a kind of element of the sort of world building, I suppose you could say. And I mean, you, you know, you, you're right, that kind of sense of Victorian London, we do have this very strong sense of it, despite the fact that actually quite a lot of the home stories um, take place. They're not necessarily even in London. You know, often they have to get a train somewhere or it's, it's generally often sort of a day trip from London. Do you know what I mean? They don't, obviously in Baskervilles, it's, it's maybe a little bit further, but they don't all take place in London, but I suppose they nearly always start in London. They start in that in that one room. There's something very kind of for, formulaic about it. You know, it always starts with someone comes to the room with a problem. They tell their story, and then Holmes and Watson. Sometimes they they don't even leave the room, and they come up with a solution. But generally, they have to go off somewhere and investigate. And it might be within London, or it might be further afield, but it's always within this kind of this world. And these people who are. There's always people from South Africa or from America or from, you know, from all over the world seem to have kind of ended up or they've been to India for a few years and come back. Everyone's sort of come back to England somehow and is, you know, bringing all their weird exotic kind of baggage with them somehow. E- even literally in the case of the Speckled Band, bringing their exotic creatures, you know, their snakes and uh, there's a baboon, I think, in, in one of them, isn't there? And I feel like well, there's a lot of exotic creatures in, in Sherlock Holmes, weirdly, more than, more than you more than you think. But yeah, there's a lot of them, actually. I feel like Sherlock would be a great advertisement for like Great Western Railways (laughs) 
or yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I, he, he, I just, I just, I, somebody must have done that. But if they haven't, like, you should do that. Like, he, he would be a great advertisement for like a, a real company because he's always taking trains, always. Um, and the most, one of the most famous images that people remember from the Strand magazine is the illustration of Watson and Sherlock talking to each other in a carriage, sitting opposite each other, and Sherlock's kind of pointing out something. And that's something that they have in lots of productions, you know, um, not some of the more modern ones, but some of the older ones still have, they'll definitely have a scene in a train carriage with Sherlock sitting opposite Watson and kind of like, um, you know, talking to him. Um, and in a way, it's a little bit like the runabout, isn't it? Like all the conversations that happen in the runabout <laughs> in various different variations of Star Trek are a little bit like that train carriage. But yeah, I've always thought that would be a, per- they'd be a perfect, two characters to advertise London's railway, railways with, because that's how the majority of Victorians, I mean, I guess unless you're wealthy, you could take a carriage somewhere. A lot of Victorians must have been able to take the train. It almost seems like in the stories, like they'd get on a train and then they're there. But actually, we're talking about long train journeys. <laughs> so <laughs> they travel quite a lot, actually, um, in a period where traveling was quite slow. Although it but, feels yeah. like it's, it all feels very modern. And, you know, they even take an underground train in, in, in some of the, you, you know, it, it feels like. They take cabs a lot. They take horse drawn cabs. They, a lot. they do take horse drawn cabs. There's this weird sort of double sided element to it as well, though, because although in some ways they feel kind of nostalgically set in the past, they're also quite interested in new developments in the future in, in new almost new technologies and so on do you know what i mean in, in things that do make it quite you know you can just get this this new high well not high speed rail but you, do you know what i mean it it feels like things are much more accessible than they were within their own lifetimes if you know what i mean i suppose that's the thing they're sort of on the cusp aren't they they're in this kind of late victorian period where they're sort of on the cusp of the modern world somehow and obviously you know conan doyle aged many years over the course of, of writing these stories, constantly trying to kind of escape from them and, and then coming back to them again. And so maybe there's that kind of weird, maybe that also plays into this sense that Holmes and Watson kind of, they are partly of of our time as much as they're of their time, if you know what I mean, because they he sort of brought them with him through time one way or another, you know, tried to kind of freeze Holmes by killing him off I mean, the fan campaign to bring back Star Trek, it's almost nothing on the fan campaign to bring back Sherlock Holmes. I mean, there were people uh, going around wearing black armbands for Sherlock Holmes for years, cancelling their subscriptions angrily to the magazines that he was, um, you you know, that he was published in. Uh, And then obviously, of, of course, eventually they they got what they wanted. I mean, initially he was brought back in the hands of the Baskervilles, uh, probably the most famous home story, but that was a prequel. That was before he was supposed to have died. But then eventually Conan Doyle kind of bowed to pressure and brought him back, you know, more for, for, for kind of, you know, brought him back from the dead in universe, essentially. But there is that kind of sense, I suppose, that Sherlockian fandom, it's not just a, a sort of subsequent invention. That was there from the get-go, you know, these stories were incredibly popular. People absolutely loved them. They have that kind of, just like Star Trek, they, they, they're, they're, the world around them is bigger than the canon, is bigger than the stories themselves, even to the extent that I believe, is this is this right, Clara? I don't think Sherlock Holmes ever says the line, elementary, my dear Watson. It's like beam me up, Scotty. It's one of these phrases that is an invention of the kind of fandom that, you you know, he he, he says many things that are a bit like that, but his most famous line is the line that he never speaks, I believe. So it's that kind of sense of... Yeah, I don't think I... Yeah, I don't think he says that. I'm ne- I don't remember him saying that. So, so it's that kind of <laughs> sense of the kind of fan 
reaction to a character almost being into a world and to a story and so on being bigger than the thing itself almost that it kind of again this sort of meta sort of universe around around the canon that hence we get that idea of the canon as being these specific stories that were written by conan doyle you know in the years that he was alive and sort of put pen to paper and then there's everything else around that that actually as time goes on just grows and grows and grows Okay. So before we go, Clara, any final thoughts on uh, Sherlock and Star Trek? Well, so the one thing that I thought was that interesting was that Sherlock um, and Star Trek itself have something in common. So not a character from Star Trek, but the whole franchise itself, um, which is the Sherlock analyzing and deducing and doing scientific experiments and coming up with the hypothesis and investigating that with the whole concept of Star Trek, which is about scientific exploration. It's about finding the, the truth behind something, trying to find the causes for things. And even though lots of characters are not like Sherlock, they can exhibit this desire anyway. And I'm thinking of particularly of Janeway, you know, who's always interested in scientific exploration, who's out there to try and find out new things and, um, you know, sort of analyzing and solving, solving mysteries and puzzles. Uh, and that sort of Sherlock and Star Trek are kind of almost like perfectly paired, you know, um, I think, which is one of the reasons why I found data as Sherlock so disappointing. <laughs> you know, and I mean, in the most recent Picard series, there's some of that sort of stuff. You know, like going going into a, to a room and sort of trying to find the clues about what happened in that situation, um, and a lot of the the new Picard series is them trying to find. Do a you mystery. mean the like Romulan CSI, Romulan CSI yeah. scenes? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting point. Yes, Star Trek, well, Star Trek, I suppose, is very rational. It's very scientific. It's very uh, you know that's definitely the. Uh, as much as that, you know, we do get stuff like the Bajoran religion and, and so on thrown in there as well. But the basic kind of framework is is very kind of, it is a sort of rational scientific framework. I mean, interestingly, though, Star Trek, of course, combines real science and what I suppose is effectively pseudoscience. You know, we have kind of warp field theory, we have subspace, we have all this kind of like fake science along with the real science. And in that, I feel there's an interesting kind of link to Holmes because... One of the interesting things about Conan Doyle is Conan Doyle managed to write this totally rational character of Holmes, despite not being a particularly rational person himself. I mean, he was a massive believer in, um, you know, mediums and spiritualism and all this stuff. He, he got into a, an argument, I think, with Harry Houdini because Houdini told him how some of his tricks were done and Doyle wouldn't really accept it. Basically, he preferred to believe that Houdini was, you know, not just a conjurer, but a kind of, you know, a, a wizard, you know, a magician in the sense of someone who can do kind of otherworldly things. You know, he was actually quite, just like Watson, to be honest, quite gullible. He was easily taken in by people and sort of fooled, but yet he never allowed Sherlock Holmes to be fooled. And very wisely, I think he always gave a kind of rational, again, sort of talking about the X-Files, always gave a kind of rational explanation at the end of the story that it never did turn out to be magic. It never did turn out to be these kind of impossible things. It is always, it comes back to science and reason and kind of this kind of rational outlook. On the other hand, there is a lot of what you might think of as kind of Victorian pseudoscience in the books insofar as there's a lot of this kind of moralization of physiognomy, I suppose, and of, you know, almost like phrenology and these kind of ideas that you can, that you can judge moral qualities by physical qualities. So relentlessly, there's this sense in the home stories that evil people 
look evil on some level. Do you know what I mean? The description, even the description of Moriarty, there's these kind of physical descriptions of faces and that you can, you can tell these things about people, you know, it's, which is almost a kind of pseudoscience in itself. But again, it's one that struck me. You could almost say Star Trek has the same attitude insofar as broadly speaking, you know, the, the sort of big, bad, nasty aliens, they make them look kind of scary and, and, uh, freaky and everything. And the, the exception that proves the rule is that episode of Voyager, which basically turns that stereotype on its head by the episode Nemesis by having these guys who, who look like, you know, the predator basically look absolutely terrifying, but turn out to not be the, the villains in the story. We just, we side with the ones who look more like us and we side against these kind of really scary, freaky looking ones. And the lesson is that we shouldn't do that. But for the most part, that is pretty much what Star Trek does. That is the kind of basic assumption is that you make the villainous characters look kind of scary and freaky and ugly and weird. Uh, and I think Conan Doyle definitely falls in to that trap to some extent, one way or another. It, there seems to be kind of consciously or otherwise the way that evil is kind of described in physical terms. There's very much this sense that he seems to have that, you know, you can kind of tell a, a bad person somehow by looking at their face. Yeah, and there's an element there which is dangerous, isn't there? Because um, he's sort of tipping into, wouldn't necessarily call it, eugenics but he's tip he's tipping into some level of racism i think um especially um in the case of is it the crooked man no it's the sign of four isn't it see i get them confused just like i get star trek episodes confused i think it's the sign of four where um isn't there supposed to be sort of like a short native man i don't want to say little native man but i think that's the way they kind of describe him who's walking walking around with the with the villain or the perpetrator of the murders and um you know they describe him as being like a pygmy and and you know he's described as looking kind of horrific and being kind of animalistic and what they're describing is a very short black man um and and even in like sort of adaptations, I'm not sure how adapting that for TV would really work so well. Um, there's an episode um, of the Sign of Four that's of the uh, Granada TV show that was on with Jeremy Brett, and Jeremy Brett is actually an excellent Sherlock Holmes, I think. But yeah, they film this and they film this little guy, and it's obviously somebody in like heavy makeup. I think he's been blacked up and getting given weird looking teeth. And that doesn't sit so well with, you know, with people now in 2020, because it could be conceived as being racist. So, or, or it is racist. So, um, so you have to remember that Arthur Conan Doyle was writing Sherlock Holmes, um, during a time of the British Empire. And, you know, they mentioned several times in the, in the stories about the, um, the rebellion. In, in in India that took place, um, where um, basically the Indians rose up against the the British soldiers and the British Empire. So yeah, there's this colonial past that's kind of evoked in these stories. This kind of period where the British are seen as perhaps maybe slightly superior to other cultures and other countries. And even though I'm not sure. Arthur Conan Doyle himself might have thought that it's just kind of in the stories themselves. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think. I mean, I think you're right. There's definitely potentially a kind of element of racism there. There's also just. I mean, it's a kind of it's a well-known 
technique in you know tv film you know literature etc whatever it's just it's quite striking in the home stories you might think that it, it seems like a sort of oversimplification of a world that in other ways conan doyle is keen to paint as kind of complex i mean even when you look at the description of professor moriarty it's it's a very striking sort of physical uh description that is sort of sort of tie into sort of how how evil he is in a, in a sense something that i think doesn't come across really in any of the on-screen moriarty's that i've seen this is what um Holmes says he says he is extremely tall and thin his forehead domes out in a white curve and his two eyes are deeply sunken in his head he's clean-shaven pale and ascetic looking retaining something of the professor in his features his shoulders are rounded from much study and his face protrudes forward and is forever slowly oscillating from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion so an amazing uh, physical description of this character. I mean, a great piece of descriptive writing, but again, this sense of a, a villain who's almost not human. I mean, a reptilian fashion, you kind of, you almost think of like a Cardassian or something. So very striking the way that Moriarty is described in clear physical terms. Now, I've never seen an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that really necessarily takes that to heart. I think you're right, Moriarty can get kind of reinvented more in terms of what he represents to us. Holmes, maybe we have more of a sense. He needs to be kind of tall and thin. I mean, both Data and Spock sort of fit. They've got the body type for Holmes. Um, Jeremy Brett, interestingly, I, I flicked on a, a late one that must have been the later seasons of, of his Sherlock Holmes. And he'd obviously been doing it for a good few years because he had clearly, you know, put on quite a few pounds and was kind of, you know, you could tell he'd been in this role for a while. And I was quite shocked because I'd seen some of his early ones. And I thought, yeah, he does look like Sherlock Holmes. And, and in the credits, they still have the kind of old images of him. And then you see this guy come on screen. You're like, oh, right. Okay. Fair enough. You know, but um, there, so we do have absolutely this sense of, you know, even in old age, I mean, there was that film with Ian McKellen as the kind of old Sherlock Holmes, wasn't there? Which again, Michael Shabon has, has uh, said was an inspiration for Picard, you know, Holmes retired and kept bees. Picard goes, and makes wine as this sense of these kind of men in retirement uh but it's got to be Ian McKellen who's kind of sort of thin as a rake and has that sort of you know he seems like sort of tall thin intelligent kind of man but interestingly I mean talking about these characters within Star Trek I mean some of them we have seen them recast we have seen in the Kelvin timeline uh a new Kirk and Spock you know in Discovery we've seen a third Spock you know Spock is a character who it seems can survive being recast and being played by other actors. And, you know, maybe no one can ever quite approach Leonard Nimoy, but they can do a pretty good job one way or another. We're kind of willing to accept that Spock is more than just that presentation. And Nimoy, of course, I should have mentioned this before, uh, played Sherlock Holmes. You know, Nimoy played Sherlock Holmes in the stage production long before, I guess, between Star Trek and The Undiscovered Country. But certainly by the time Nicholas Meyer was writing The Undiscovered Country, he would probably have been aware that Nimoy had played Sherlock Holmes on stage. And also Christopher Plummer, who is uh, General Chang. Um, he also played Sherlock Holmes in a rather strange film where Sherlock has, has to sort of defeat and kind of catch and defeat uh, the... Uh, Jack the Ripper, another character that also kind of weirdly appeared in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> but, you know, not in, not in a sort of understandable way. But yeah, so I think there's a lot of links between the two different universes, uh, two different franchises, if you can call Sherlock Holmes a franchise. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think that maybe actors who are drawn to the same types of characters again and again in order to play them. So Christopher Plummer, 
plays Sherlock Holmes opposite Jack the Ripper. So in the in the in the in the action in the action in this film, yeah, it's called I can't remember what it's called now. It's something to do with blood. Oh. Because I was going to say, then of course you've also got Nicholas Meyer made the film Time After Time, which is about H. G. Wells going up against Jack the Ripper. But H. G. Wells tells everyone his name is Sherlock Holmes. So there's this kind of weird sense. He's not a Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes is not in the story, but yet he is kind of in the story because he's using Sherlock Holmes as an alias in that story. So it's it's a film is called um, Murder by Decree. By Decree. Uh, it's a British Canadian film, um, and Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson um, go against. Uh, basically, they they're embroiled in the investigation surrounding the real life um, 1888 Whitechapel murders committed by Jack the Ripper. And James Mason plays Watson, which I think is an interesting choice. Wow. And who plays Jack the Ripper? Although there is a, there isn't there a film called The Study, A Study in Terror, which has James Hill as Sherlock Holmes, who also goes against Jack the Ripper. I think there's several. It does feel like stories. an obvious kind of. I mean, time after time, as I say, sort of bypasses it because it's actually H.G. Wells, but it kind of can't can't resist getting Sherlock Holmes in there somehow. It certainly feels like Sherlock Holmes ought to have kind of solved. If being around at the time, it's a bit like that whole thing of why didn't Superman stop 9-11? Do you know what I mean? Like, surely Sherlock Holmes should have caught the Ripper. Uh, and if he didn't, why? You know, it, I guess it sort of begs that question. But again, that kind of takes us back to this idea of the Sherlockians and this kind of idea of trying to reconcile real world history with fictional history, you know, trying to reconcile the the the, the real things that we know happened with these kind of fictional accounts that were often written slightly carelessly. Um, and we have the same thing with Star Trek, you know, where were the eugenics wars in the 1990s that we lived through? I mean, I talked to Greg Cox about this, you know, he wrote a set of novels kind of trying to fit uh, uh, the eugenics wars into our own timeline without breaking it essentially. But it's a, uh, that that's kind of the challenge. And that's, I suppose that's the game for the Schlockians and that's the game for Star Trek fans as well is to sort of desperately try to, Pretend it's not just a TV show, <laughs> you know, one way or another. We, as Cisco says, it's, it's real, to, it's real. You know, it's that kind of trying to make the fantasy the a game, reality. Yeah, exactly. If we all just try hard enough, we can make it real one day. <laughs> <laughs> we can make the Vulcans come and have first contact yeah, with us. Yeah, just a few more decades <laughs> to go. <laughs> if there's any of us left by then to to welcome. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking about Sherlock Holmes and Star Trek this week and great to do so in the presence of a serious Sherlockian like you Clara but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week so here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network previously on Trek.FM The Line a Star Trek Picard podcast I like the character but I would have rather seen Nunian <laughs> okay interesting tiebreaker de Klerksalagi. that's your new nickname is tiebreaker <laughs> yeah chrissy what do you think since brandon and i think exactly the opposite yeah, um, that's, all right. <laughs> that's why you gotta have three people it works better earl gray no i think the hat's yeah. going to get bigger but also double as her spacecraft it'll unfold it'll envelop her and she'll be able to just walk out an airlock and zoom off <laughs> Oh, it's wow. her personal transporter. Oh, there comes the edge. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, next. I like yep. Amy. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. For a logic extremist suicide bomber to be shown on screen in Star Trek, blowing up a ship with a high profile ambassador on it in yeah. uh, Sarek, it is doing exactly what Star Trek usually does. Mm in terms of bringing something from the real world straight back into the show. And I thought that that was one of the most 
stark examples of that in season one with Vlatak. Yeah. The Ready Room. This story, Una's book, which is excellent, and the upcoming third season of Discovery from what we've seen so far are all at their core commentaries on our present day. They're commentaries on Brexit, they're commentaries on the Trump administration, they're commentaries on the sort of the way that countries and governments around the world are turning their back on globalization and they're becoming insular. And, you know, science fiction has always been about social commentary and Star Trek has been about social commentary. And so what we're seeing is modern day commentary on the current climate of the world. And that's the reason that these stories are taking the form that they're taking as far as I see it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at @ClaraGeneMC and Tony at, at @AJBlackWriter. You're blended, all right. <laughs>